Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you open your Bibles up again to the book of Romans this week? Our text will be Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. You remember that last week... Thank you, dear brother. You remember that last, actually two weeks ago, I guess it was, we looked at Romans 8.28, and this week we will look at the rest of this section, this paragraph, verses 28 to 30. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture we have for this Lord's Day. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's a, there's, there's a couple verses that are often quoted in marriage, Christian marriage ceremonies. And one of the statements in those verses is this statement, a cord of three strands is yeah, not easily broken, not quickly broken. What we have here in Romans chapter 8 is not a cord of three strands, but a cord of four strands. And this cord is impossible to break. And that's really what I have to say, and if you're willing to believe me, you can leave now. But you have to see that all four of the strands of this cord, or what I'm going to refer to it as, is it's a fortress with four walls. These walls are mortise and tenon. You cannot pull them apart without destroying the fort. And this fort is what guards and gives you eternal security as a child, as a son of God. And so... Across history of God's people studying this passage of Scripture, they've referred to this as the golden chain, the golden cord, the golden strand. And it is precious. Now, what are the four parts of this chain, of this strand, the four parts of this fortress? First of all, number one, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Number two, those whom he predestined, he also called. Number three, those whom he called, he also justified. And number four, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we'll come back to glorified, which we end with in a little while. But you remember, we have a saying this church that comes down through the centuries to us. And the saying is, the Christian, the real Christian, 
the man or woman who belongs to God, the boy or girl who belongs to God, the Christian, desires three things with regard to sin. Justification that it does not condemn us. Sanctification that it doesn't reign over us. R-E-I-G-N, not pitter-patter. Kings reign. Sanctification that doesn't reign over us, that it doesn't uh, rule us. Thank you. And glorification that it will not be. Okay? So glorification is that time when you die, I die, when Christ returns, and finally we're in the presence of the Lord. And all the difficulties of this veil of tears, all the difficulties of our, our brains running contrary to the truth, of us being oppressed by our own sinfulness, of the wickedness of the world, our desire to give in to our lust, all those battles that the Christian life involves are gone. Glorification, justification that our sin won't condemn us, sanctification that our sin will not rule us, and glorification that it will not be. And that's what we're living for. And that's the only time where we have finally our home. Okay? Now notice in the text how it speaks of glorification. You all know you do not be glorified yet, right? Because you're suffering. So you haven't been glorified, but would you look at your Bibles and would you tell me what tense is glorification in? Uh, have any of you learned grammar? What's the tense? It's past tense. Isn't that weird? So why would the Apostle Paul write the Christians in Rome and talk about their glorification when sin's finally gone? Why would he write about that in past tense? Well, the reason is that with God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Time to us is not time to God. Okay? And we see that especially in what in the Old Testament is called the prophetic uh, past and future. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Hebrew is read in such a way that what is future is spoken of as the past. And can you understand that that would emphasize the certainty, the absolute certainty of the Word of God? You know, if you talk about things that are in the future as if they're in the past, you know... Your dad says to you, you know, you want to get ice cream. You're halfway between Denver and Indianapolis, right? It's a family vacation. Your dad won't stop for anything, especially the restroom, right? You say, Daddy, can we stop for ice cream? Because you know he likes ice cream, and that means you will use the restroom. (laughs) Well, if your dad has a bit of a credibility problem with his family, because he often promises things he doesn't deliver on, your dad might up the ante a little bit, and what would he say? Well, he'd say, it's done. Well, you know it's not done because you're not eating ice cream. But you know that he is, you know, he's speaking of the future as if it were the... Well, this is exactly what is happening here in this text when it speaks of glorification in the past tense. It's done. And that should be a wonderful hope to us. Now, we'll come back to that later. 
Uh, you'll be happy to know we're only going to make it through the first of the four parts this week. Okay? Okay? Otherwise, I just cause all kinds of problems. So what is the first part? The first part of this building, this, this fortress, the first part is those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And so if you look at this fortress, it's having four walls, four strands, four parts, four links in the chain. The first one is that God foreknew us, and because of that, he predestined us. God foreknows us, and therefore, he predestines us. There are none who are predestined who are not foreknown. Can you see that in the text? Only, it doesn't have the word only, but it's understood, only those who are foreknown are predestined. Now, I once was in a uh, horticulture class at UW-Madison, and it was a wonderful class. And one day, the professor took us out to his monster garden, and he showed me something I'd never seen before, which is Brussels sprouts growing. I don't like Brussels sprouts. I thought they were hideous, even looking at them growing. It was like a teenage boy with lots of pimples coming out of everywhere on his body. You know, these little round things. You know, it's just like, it was ugly. Have any of you seen Brussels sprouts growing? They're ugly, you know. But then the professor pulled one off the plant and gave it to us and had us taste it. And I had never had any idea that Brussels sprouts could be good. Generally, if you say to your children that they're going to have Brussels sprouts for dinner, it's going to stink. They're going to say, oh, oh no, not Brussels sprouts. And that's the way we react to any use of the word or the concept of predestination in Scripture. It's Brussels sprouts to us. And we have our guard up and we're like, oh no, it's ugly. And it tastes bad. Right? That's the way we are. And so we haven't gotten to predestination yet, but we're already hinged to it because it says, those whom he foreknew, he, tambien, also predestined. So you don't want to go to predestined this week, and that's okay, we won't. But you're already linked to it. And so... Naturally, because we don't like predestination, we say, well, <laughs> what's this for new? And we get all Weasley. And since it's linked, we try to mess it up. Well, whatever is linked to predestination, let's mess it up real good. Let's take the box cutter and let's hit the pillowcase and shake all the feathers in the air and just blow a fan so that nobody can see anything going on in the bedroom. And that's what people have done through history to the first link, which is foreknowledge. They've ripped it to shreds. They've argued this. They've argued that. They've misunderstood it intentionally. And then they've argued this and argued that in such a way that by the time you get to predestination, uh, you're completely confused. Now, let me back up and ask you a question. 
And I ask this of those of you who think of yourselves as Arminian, and I ask this of those of you that think of yourselves as Reformed. Both of you together, when you stand before God at the judgment seat, which you most certainly will, when you stand before God at the judgment seat and he says to you, plead, you know, guilty or not guilty, okay? What are you going to plead? I've said this to a lot of people who think they're not Reformed, a lot of people who claim to be Arminian. And I've never heard any of them say, I'm going to plead my works. I've never had anybody say to me, I'm going to trot out the good things I've done in my life so that I am not afraid of God at that moment. Nobody ever says that. No one. I have never had anybody say to me, well, I'm going to say to God, I... I put my faith in Jesus, and my faith is strong. I've never had anybody indicate in any way that anything they will say to God will have to do with themselves. Generally, they don't even talk about their faith in Jesus. Arminian or Calvinist reform together, what they'll always say is, I'm going to stand before him, and I'm going to say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay? There is no hope for us before God except through Jesus. There's none. And if you are not clinging to the righteousness of Jesus... If you're not clinging to him submitting to the humiliation of life on this earth, being mocked and scorned, if you're not submitting to his righteousness and paying for the penalty of the sin that he bore on the cross for us, if your hope is anything other than the righteousness of Christ, Understand, I'm not being aggressive in saying this, but you don't know God. You don't know his holiness, and you don't know your own wickedness. I had a young woman say to me as she left the first sermon this morning, she's grown up in a Christian home, and she said to me, I just don't think I see my sinfulness the way I need to. And you can imagine if you're raised in a Christian home and your parents discipline you and you're taught to trust in Jesus that you might not understand your sinfulness the way some of us do. All right, right? You know? So I said to her, don't worry. As soon as you get married and have children, you'll see it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, the, the train... It be coming? But of course, that's not really what she was asking. What she was asking was, if you've read all the texts this morning about what it is to be outside of Christ, and I have never seen myself in such horror, and so there are some of you today who 
as you go through life, because you grew up in a Christian home, God will open your eyes. The Holy Spirit will increasingly convict you of sin. And this is good and natural, that especially those of you who grew up in Christian homes, will come increasingly as you get older, under an awareness of your sin. Don't fight it. This is sanctification. This is you becoming more like Jesus, okay? But, Remember what I was saying, which is, if you take an Arminian, and if you take a Reformed person, you ask them both how they will stand before God at the judgment seat, both of them naturally will point to Jesus and shut up. That's what you will do if you're Arminian. Why? Well, an Arminian can talk all they want to about protecting God's reputation. You know, how we can't allow God to be responsible for evil. But when it comes to standing before God, no Arminian is going to say that they're responsible for good. Because they know their good is filthy rags, which it's called in Jeremiah. It's actually bloody rags. Women, yes, that's what it means. And no pagan who has refused to bow before Jesus prior to that moment. He stands before God. None of them are going to say, you didn't choose me. You know, what will be true before God is every mouth will be stopped. There will only be truth in the presence of God. Okay? Now, why do I bring this up? Well, let's say that you don't like the word predestinate, and so you get all squirrely with the word for no, for new. You know, you know what's coming, and so you, you mess around with for new so that you don't have to hit predestinate real hard, right? What are you going to do to for new? Well, it's been done. You're not inventing it, it's been done. What you'll do with for no is you'll start by thinking, well, maybe it's just a, you know, maybe it's just a, a restatement of God's omniscience, that God knows everything, and so God foreknew you, you know? God knows all things, right? But, dude, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, this is not, a, you know, this is not the statement of the obvious. When have you ever known the Apostle Paul to do that? You know, he's not just saying God foreknows you. Well, how does he foreknow? Well, because God knows all things. It doesn't satisfy why would you link that up with the other three parts of the chain? It just makes no sense, right? So throw that out. It's not stating that, well, God knows everything and God foreknew you. Nah, 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 nah. So then you'll get squirrel and you'll say, okay, well, it's not as omniscience. What it's talking about is that God anticipated some aspect of my existence such that he decided, are you ready for this, to meet me halfway. Now, nobody puts it like that, but that's what they're saying. And typically, it's either good works or faith. Well, God saw that I would put my faith in Jesus, and so he foreknew that I was going to put my faith in Jesus, and so anticipating my putting faith in Jesus, then he decided to predestinate me. Of course, that's foolish. You know, predestined actually has meaning that you can't escape, okay? Predestined, all right? Not postdestined or intradestined, you know? 
predestined, okay? And so, again and again through the years, what everybody said is, well, God saw that I would have faith in him. God saw that I put my faith. God saw that I would pray the sinner's prayer, that I put my trust in him. And so, foreknowing my faith in him, God predestined me. Okay, so let's grant you the predestined and move back to that it's God's anticipatory action. All right, now, whether it's faith or whether it's righteousness, this is a sincere question. Are you really going to stand in the presence of God and look at him And you're going to say to him, you should understand that I am a man that you foreknew that I would pray the sinner's prayer, that I would be good, as good as I was able, without some reciprocal goodness adding to me through the Holy Spirit. In other words, again, Are you really going to argue that God foreknew you because you would be good or you would exercise your faith until it was enough that God would reciprocate? In other words, are you going to stand before God and cling slightly to yourself and mostly to Jesus because that's always what it amounts to? Or are you going to say to God, God, you knew me before I was in the womb. From all eternity past, you knew me. Now, at this point, some people will say, well, yes, that's what it says. He foreknew you, okay? And I say, okay, so what it means is that God didn't know you, but that God, are you ready for this? Listen carefully. That God, you're listening. It doesn't mean that God knew you. It means that God knew what? Something about you. I mean, do you see the equivocation you've just committed? You know, the text says God knew you, and you're just inserting a little, well, he knew something about me. Well, what is that something? Well, it's not in the text. All the text says is God knew you. The text doesn't give reasons that God knew you, namely that you were going to be a person who had some faith and then God was. It doesn't say that you were going to be a person who, as well as you were able before you were a Christian, you would obey God and, and follow his law. It doesn't say that. It says God knew you. It doesn't say God knew this about you. Now, this word, foreknew, is from the Greek root that we get words like uh, Gnosticism. Uh, actually, this, this word in, in, in its noun form is the same word as the medical term prognosis. What is your prognosis? Uh, Stage four. That's not a good prognosis. That's not somebody that will be glorified. Right? If the prognosis is the tests are negative, that's good. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the first link in the chain is that God foreknew you. 
that God had a prognosis for you, okay? And what was the prognosis? Well, the prognosis was that he foreknew you. And you say, well, that's nonsensical. You're just running around in circles. And I say, okay, let me read a couple places where this word is used in Scripture, okay? In the Bible, the same word is used, and this is what it says. Romans 11 Beginning with verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he what? Whom he foreknew. Why are they his people? Well, they're his people because he foreknew them. And so he's not rejected them. Or Acts 2, 23, the Apostle Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching, and he says, this man, and he's referring to Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Remember, there, the pre-part that we all don't like comes before the foreknowledge. Okay? Jesus was delivered over by, by agency, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This man you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men you put him to death. In 1 Peter 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen... According to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. And so these are the same words that are used here. These words are not referring to God seeing something in you, God anticipating, foreknowing something about you. These are the use of this word in such a way that God is the agent. You aren't. That God is the agent and that God ties to his foreknowledge of you, his choice of you. Okay? Now, I want to explain something about Scripture that will help you a number of places if, if you learn it. In the, old, in, 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 in the centuries around Christ, there was an effort to translate the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, into Greek. And because, hypothetically, there were 70 scholars that did it, it, it came to be called the 70 or the Septuagint. And if you look in literature, it's always abbreviated in Roman numerals for 70, which is LXX. Now, why should you care about the Septuagint? Because the Septuagint, in the context of Scripture, is one of the best sources we have to understand the way a word is used in the New Testament. Why? Well, because the Septuagint is biblical scholars who know Scripture who translate it from the Hebrew to the Greek. And so if a Greek word is used in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, often you want to see how that Greek word is used in the Septuagint and what Hebrew it translates as a way of understanding how that same word is used in the New Testament, in Greek. Because Hebrew is the original language of the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, except for a few words which are Aramaic. 
but don't bother with the Aramaic, okay? And as it turns out, there is an Old Testament term for knowing. Consistent in the Old Testament, often translated with this for new, for no in Greek. And so what we want to do is we want to look at the meaning of this Hebrew construction because that will indicate to us one of the certain meanings of this Greek construction, right? So what is that use? Well, it actually is a use that when I was in high school, we used to sort of speak of in a sort of, <laughs> in sort of a, yeah, kind of way. You ready? Josiah, be, cover your ears, Josiah. Okay, that's a joke. <laughs> Do any of you ever remember in high school looking at somebody else and saying to them, he knew her in a biblical way? How many? So you, now you know this Hebrew construction. To know somebody is often where you take the initiative and you decide you're going to be intimate. And that is translated with the same Greek word as we have here. He foreknew you. Who's taking the initiative? Well, if I ask you who's taking the initiative in, 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 in the word predestinate, you're going to say God. If I ask you who's taking the initiative in calling, you're going to say God. If I ask you who's taking the initiative in justification, who are you going to say? God. Glorification, you're going to say God. God set his affection on you, and foreknew you, and because of that, he predestined you to salvation. Okay? And you know what I'm saying is, it's all of God. And listen, that's either a comfort to you, or you repudiate it, you reject it. And so which is it? Is it really so difficult for us to allow God to choose us? I mean, honestly, what is wrong with looking to God for everything? What is wrong with saying it's all of God? Are we so committed to seeing ourselves as citizens of the United States of America, the most powerful passport in the world? I mean, you know, they can argue about it, but I'll take a U.S. passport, (laughs) you know. I mean... Who do we think we are? I mean, honestly. He foreknew us. And you go back into the Old Testament, you see this right from the get-go in Genesis, where it speaks in the 18th chapter of God's choice of, of Abraham. And it says in Genesis eighteen nineteen, God is speaking, and he says, For I have chosen him. About Abraham. For I have chosen him. Do you know how the New International Version, Revised Standard Version, translate that Hebrew? They translate it, for I have known him. 
it's the same Hebrew construction, the Hebrew word. And do you know how the, the, the Septuagint translates it into Greek back there? It translates it with the same word that's used here for new. And listen to what else is said there in Genesis 18. God says, for I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Who's the agent here? You say, well, Abraham's the agent. He's going to command them. That whole thing is based on God's foreknowledge, and God uses his commands to Abraham to fulfill his covenant that he's made with Abraham. Do you see this? It's God, 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 God. Is Abraham involved? Yes, Abraham is involved. We must choose God. We must command our children. The choice is a real choice. It does not violate the free will of man when God commands us and we obey. He predestines us in such a way that it doesn't do violence to our will. This is what the Westminster Standards say. And you say, well, how does that work? And I say, I don't have a clue. I don't have to answer that question because the Bible doesn't answer that question. I don't have to answer it. And you say, oh, yeah, you do. You know, we pay you. (laughs) And you're the Bible expert. And I respond with Deuteronomy 29.29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord. Our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. I have no obligation to go farther than Scripture goes. I don't, I don't have it. You say, well, if you don't give me some explanation, you're logically inconsistent. And I say, no, I'm not logically inconsistent. And you say, oh, yeah, you are. I say, no. Scripture is inconsistent with your understanding of the notion of fairness. That's the problem. But God is not bothered. God is not worried about what you think of his perfections. (laughs) You know? For instance, let's take the perfection of omniscience. Okay? If God knows everything, that means that God knew that Adam was going to sin before he created Adam. You follow my logic? He's omniscient. He knows all things. Well, so immediately you say, well, then God's the author of evil. I mean, it's just logical, you know? And here's what I say. You say God's the author of evil if he knows everything beforehand. And I say this. I say, no, the Bible says this. Excuse me a second. Psalm 5, 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. 
James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is good. You must be holy as I, the Lord your God, are holy. God is not the author of evil. You say, well, he knows everything, and he created everything. And evil came. And he knew evil was going to come. That makes God the author of evil. And I say yes to a certain ignorant person, that would seem to be a logical conclusion. And you say, no, 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 it's not ignorant people. It's very smart people, people who have a PhD and speak about theodicy. And I say, like I said, ignorant people. And you say, are you calling people with PhDs ignorant? Okay. No. Until they say that because of the foreknowledge of God, because of the omniscience of God, because of the omnipotence of God, because God said, let there be light and there was light, therefore God is the author of evil. And the minute they say that, I say, you're ignorant? And they say, well, I have a PhD, and I've written a book on theodicy. Theodicy is the discussion of the origin of good and evil and also of suffering. And I say, but you just contradicted Scripture, and if that isn't the definition of ignorance, I don't know any definition of ignorance. And you say, well, I mean, (laughs) are you serious? You think anybody at IU actually believes what the Bible says? And I say, yeah, there are actually a lot of them there. They're hiding behind doors and down in stairwells. (laughs) But they're there. And they say, well, but they probably have their degree in mechanical engineering and belong at Purdue. Come on, you guys. Do you know nothing about IU and Purdue? That was a howler. (laughs) I was talking to a journalist this week about the... uh, the uh, Eric Rasmussen affair. You know, you got the Dreyfus affair, you got the Rasmussen affair. (laughs) And in talking to him, you know, I I made the statement, I said, shouldn't there be some place in higher education for true Christians who say biblical things? After all, for 2,000 years, everybody has agreed with this statement, and I proceeded to make a statement about manhood and womanhood. And I said, this is, like a, uh, this is like a completely boring thing across all, all, all history of the Western world. Shouldn't somebody, somewhere, sometime, in higher education, be able to say that? He said, well, you're talking like Christians are, are, are a minority. And he said, they're not a minority where I live. And they're not a minority where my parents live. And I said, yes, yes, I understand. You have Trump supporters that live next to you, and so do your parents. I get it. And they're ignorant. But I'm not talking about where you live. I'm not talking about where your parents live. I'm talking about the university. And shouldn't there be one person who's a Christian at the university and is able to say what 2,000 years of Christians have said. 
Are you really going to argue with me about the fact that I'm declaring that that would be an incredibly exotic person at Indiana University? And he said, you're right. And I said, wouldn't that make it so much more interesting at Indiana University to occasionally have one Christian? Wouldn't everybody wake from their political correct stupor and say, hey, we have a live one? Wouldn't the professors grading papers wake up and say, this is interesting? Now, you're all with me. Do not allow people with degrees to intimidate you into what is ignorant and what is smart. When the Bible reveals to us the nature of the justice and fairness of God, the Bible is wise and man is foolish. This is what Scripture means when it says that the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. And then it says, but God has chosen to make foolish the wise. God has chosen to have his son teach in parables so that having eyes they will not see, having ears they will not hear, else they would repent. In other words, God's agency is closing the ears and the eyes so they won't repent. Now you're standing before God and you tell me, what are you going to say to him? And the truth is, not one of us are going to make anything of our agency when it comes to our salvation. We're going to say, look at Jesus. And if he says, don't you have anything else to say for yourself? We're going to say, nope, nope, nope. Look at Jesus. Well, haven't you improved upon his righteousness by adding some of your own? And we're going to say, look at Jesus. But you guys, are we really going to be that squirrely and weasley in the presence of God? You know we're not. You know we're going to point to Jesus. You know we're going to shut up and point to Jesus. Can't we please import that back into the present? Can't we please begin to say that it's all of grace? Can we stop being squirrely with four new and act as if it's anticipatory and reciprocal? Come on, guys. Let's be humble. Huh? Can't we just cast ourselves on Jesus? Years ago, I was preaching a similar theme. This is not actually a a large theme in our church, right? But I was preaching a similar theme. And I said at the end of the sermon, I said, you know, when when somebody asks you, and when you ask yourself, why is it that I'm a Christian? Now you know that right next to the question is the question, why did God choose me? Why did God foreknow me? Okay? And what is the answer? Do any of you remember what I said? I said this. I said, remember? Just because. <laughs> you know? It's so dignified. 
Why did God choose you? Why did he foreknow you? Why are you predestined? Why are you called? Why are you justified? Why are you glorified? Just because. Because it was his good pleasure. Because God wanted to demonstrate his mercy to some. And I was a pretty good candidate because I needed it. And everybody looked at me and said, "Ah, not seriously. Him? And so that's a really good example of his mercy. (laughs) Because nobody thought that I did anything that allowed him to reciprocate. Will you all agree that that's Tim Bailey? No, honestly. Come on, Joni. You'll agree. You'll agree. Come on. Now, let me turn it to you. You really think you're better than I am? You really think that you're a better candidate for God's mercy and grace than I am? I might think you are, right? Because I often think that. But you don't think that. I want to end by saying something that I think is important in this text. It says in um, it says something in the book of Galatians that is very important. It says um, Galatians four nine. It says, "But now that you know God, do you remember this?" And then do you remember the M dash and then the exclamation that's in the middle of the text and then the other M dash and then it continues. So it says, but now that you know God, and then if I can speak this way about scripture, the apostle Paul comes to his senses and he realizes he shouldn't have put it that way, okay? This is what it says, Galatians 4 now, but now that you know God or rather are known by God. But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God. And do you remember when we studied that, we said, what a beautiful description of what it is to be a Christian. We want to speak about, I know God. You know, Packer's book, Knowing God. But the truth is, none of us know God. God knows us. And what comfort! What comfort! And so I want to end by saying to you that when Satan accuses me, which he does to us all, and it's awful dealing with it. It's absolutely awful. Always pray for the men that are preaching to you. When Satan accuses me, I'd say almost the most frequent accusation Satan makes against me is where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And he says to them, he says, I will say to them, what? Get away from me. You remember? I never knew you. And the reason I'm so susceptible to that is because I don't pray the way I should. I don't dwell in Scripture the way I should. And so my conscience assaults me. And you know how it assaults me? It says to me, you don't know God. 
And then it goes further and it says, you, you don't know God because you don't want to know God. And so then I read that or I hear it from Satan. And what I think is, yeah, he's right. He says, I never knew you. And I look at my fruit of intimacy with God, communion with God, prayer with God, all this stuff, and I just think how horrible I am that I take God for granted, that I'm familiar with the things of God to preach, to counsel, to testify, and yet look at me. I don't know God. And so as I was preparing to preach this verse, I just thought, I don't want to be impious, but I just thought it's not about me. It says he foreknew me. I can't rest for my eternal security and the zeal of my, oh, you ready for this? You can't rest in my passion for God. I mean, honestly, if anybody opens their mouth about passion, one thing I know is they have no passion. What I have to rest in is that he foreknew me. And because of that, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And it is accomplished. Are you with me? You remember what Lloyd-Jones said? Lloyd-Jones says that faith is what? Faith is keeping unbelief under your heel like a snake. And so you use this, you use this verse, you use this verse, you must use this verse to stand against the fiery darts that our enemy Satan is using against us, okay? Jody, could you come and lead us in the Lord's Supper, please?